0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come.
1: It is really nice to be able to run an intellectual business and not give a shit about how other people think and how far from the crowd you are. But it's not sustainable without a sign, Right? And it's not sustainable to be as eccentric as I am without my wife being very straight as well.
0: <laughs> On today's episode, I'm speaking to self-styled eccentric John Hempton. Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder with Simon Maher of Bronte Capital, a Sydney-based global fund manager. John and Simon began Bronte Capital in 2009 in the midst of the economically devastating global financial crisis. They invest other people's money, well, sophisticated high-net-worth people. They invest both long and short in stocks around the globe. I'll get to short selling in a moment because it's a key part not only of his business, but of who John is. Bronte Capital has grown to around 1 billion US dollars in funds under management in just 11 years. To put that into some context, hugely successful Aussie fund manager Platinum Asset Management has approximately 22 billion Australian dollars in funds under management. In fact, John Hempton was a researcher and became the youngest partner at Platinum Asset Management under the guidance of fund manager extraordinaire, Care Nielsen, before John left to start Bronte. Now, John is not your garden variety fund manager. He's a maverick who revels in being eccentric. He's highly engaging, a deep thinker, and thorough researcher, into the underlying worth and value of a company and what it actually does. Hempton has a bloodhound's nose for stock frauds and serial corporate fraudsters. You might have seen John Hempton featured in the recent Netflix documentary series, Dirty Money, about Big Pharma. Sniffing out fraudsters was sparked partly by his early career, post-university, spent working out tax avoidance schemes while in the Federal Treasury, working under famed bureaucrat Ken Henry in Canberra. In that tax avoidance team, Hempton's short-selling strategy, some say his obsession, started to take shape. Bronte Capital combs the world for crummy stocks, as he calls them, with share prices hopefully on their way down. That's when you short sell a stock. And he tries to make money from those in order to then invest in great quality companies where you think their shares will go up over time. That's the long side of the equation. As a quick refresher before we begin the interview, here's how John Hempton explains shorting a stock.
1: Everybody in the market seems to bet one way. They bet that things appreciate. You get long a property or you get long some BHP shares. The way we tend to do it is almost entirely to focus on frauds.
0: So you borrow shares in company A and sell them as their price is high, then you bet that share price will go down and you buy back in at the lower price and you've hopefully made a killing on the difference. But it's notoriously difficult and short sellers are heavily criticised by company managements who claim that short sellers are airing negative things about a company to supposedly drive down the share price. But have a listen to John Hempton in this interview and make up your own mind. We started out talking about Wirecard, a massive German tech stock darling that's recently fallen from grace after revealing that 1.9 billion euros had simply gone missing from the Philippines bank where it was supposed to be. A senior executive's been arrested and a scandal's ensued. Wirecard was a merchant credit card operator. They give the little card terminal to someone selling things and take a cut. Bronte shorted Wirecard. They were right about Wirecard, but it ended up being the biggest loss Bronte Capital has ever suffered. John Hempton, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. It's a pleasure. It's great to speak to you. Now, I wanted to ask you about Wirecard, the German merchant card operator that's been huge news in Europe in particular, but it has been followed in Australia too. The lessons for Australia, this is the Wirecard auditors, they face legal action, there's a missing 1.9 billion euro. We don't know, do we, whether it was missing Always was it never there?
1: Uh, we have lots of information on Wirecard now. Why is it important for Australia? Well, a very big picture. It's just a giant fraud. Think of it as an Enron or a Worldcom, one of the biggest frauds that's ever come undone. In this case, it was a member of the DAX thirty, which is the thirty top stocks in Europe, in Germany. So you think Germany's an economy four times the size of Australia. Take the 30 top stocks in Australia, multiply them by four, and that's about what you'd get for a DAX 30. And It demonstrates failure at all sorts of levels, failure at the auditor level, failure at the regulatory level, and dare I say it, the straight straight out involvement of organized crime in the stock market. Now, there have been instances that have been reported in Australia of organized crime in the Australian stock market and in the Australian superannuation industry. They're cumulatively being small. The biggest one was an asset manager called Astara Trio, which I was actually integrally involved in exposing. But Astara Trio Set up fake superannuation funds. So
0: this is a star of funds, and Trio right. Capital was Trio, their
1: custodian. Trio Capital was their back, custodian. What, Twenty years ago. No, only two. years ago. Yeah, only 10, sorry. Ten years ago, eleven years ago. But they set up an asset manager. It looked for all purposes like a legitimate asset manager. They approached regional financial planners. In this case, the big victims were customers of financial planners in Wollongong and in Port Pirie. And the reason that they picked on Wollongong and Port Piri was that the markets are relatively unsophisticated. So the financial planner in Port Piri is less likely to spot a fraud than the financial planner in Northern Sydney, just because the world's more unsophisticated. And regulators were utterly oblivious to it. Now, if I take that sort of fraud and I multiply it by hundreds, that's when I get to Wirecard. And it's the same problem, right? Which is, you know, organized crime in financial markets, but multiplied by a very large amount so that it becomes just giant. And the regulators are just as oblivious to it. Now I'm going to give the Australian regulator some credit here. The Australian regulator is not good, but it's not actively awful. The response. When I wrote my now famous letter to the regulator- This is to
0: ASIC that you wrote ASIC ASIC about Trio, about trio Capital. Capital.
1: They took the letter seriously. They did some research and they worked out that I was probably right. Then they did a little bit more research and worked out that I was right. And it took them only a few weeks to get on top of it when they were tipped off. By contrast, the German regulator became totally captured by Wirecard. So you got this situation where if you sent the German regulator information on Wirecard, they would get to the point of prosecuting you for spreading rumours about this company and hence manipulating the stock. And they actually got to the point, and this is astonishing, of criminally charging two journalists from the Financial Times. Now, business journalists don't expect to get criminally charged for telling the truth. But nonetheless, it's the same story right? It was a bunch of organized crime that got involved in financial markets. Now, we did some simple work on it, and this will explain how we determined it. The original business was a business being a high-risk merchant acquirer. Now, if I think of a credit card, I take my credit card down to Harvey Norman and I spend $100. Jerry Harvey doesn't pick up the $400, he picks up $98.20. $1.80 is siphoned off as the price of using the credit card. On one of those little terminals. Yeah, just on the, one of the little terminals. Yeah, which Jerry doesn't own. Jerry. Another company now $1. owns. $1.80 gets split up three ways. One way it gets split up is it's sent to National Australia Bank, who are my bank, and it's a fee paid to the card issuer bank for the purposes of Providing me credit. And in fact, the vast bulk of the fee goes to the card issuer bank. And the reason is the card issuer bank takes the main risk. And the main risk is that somebody's not going to pay their credit card. About one cent of that fee, just one part in 10,000 goes to Visa. And that's for providing the network right? So there's a network that hooks up bank. And Visa is actually an astonishing business collecting $0.01 per $100 across the world off every credit card business. And about $0.09 of that fee goes to Jerry Harvey's bank, which is called a merchant acquirer fee. And merchant acquiring is a relatively thin margin business because they justifiably accept that there's no real risk of providing Jerry Harvey a terminal. And so for the most part, merchant acquiring's a thin margin, but not very attractive business. Right. But, but not risky. No, not risky. But there are some fat margin bits of merchant acquiring. And that's what Wirecard is. And Wirecard started as a high-risk merchant acquirer. And it's a little hard to explain a high-risk merchant acquirer, but I'll give you the most famous example in the industry, which is giving a brothel or a prostitute a credit card terminal. There are several problems with it. Firstly, surprisingly large numbers of stolen credit cards get run through those terminals. Oh, really? I never
0: would have guessed that.
1: (laughs) The second thing is that transactions become disputable very fast. Like, did the transaction really happen? What record of the transaction? I was never there, Your (laughs) Honour. And so if you give a prostitute or a brothel a credit card terminal, you can expect regulatory problems, you can expect credit losses, you can expect fraud losses. And the fee that is charged might not be 1.8% it might be closer to 10% or even 15% and the reason is that the bank that's issuing that card to the high risk customer is really taking quite a lot of risks regulatory risks fraud risks etc now in the high risk business there are two high risk businesses that really matter one is online casinos and again you know the idea of I've got a stolen credit card. I put a thousand dollars into an online casino playing poker. I lose that poker to my friend over there, that thousand dollars. And now he has a real thousand dollars. And you know, somebody's out of pocket for a thousand dollars here. That happens all the time. But the second other problem with online casinos is that there are a lot of jurisdictions and most notably the US in which these things have been illegal. And if you run an online casino,
0: Here, are they illegal, online casinos? (laughs) I don't
1: know if uh, Australia doesn't prosecute things like the US. Wirecard was originally a business doing high-risk merchants, and that meant online casinos and pornography. Pornography is actually a really nasty business, and the reason is that there is actually no conceptual way of training a computer to tell the difference between pornography and child abuse material. And if you do pornography, inevitably, you're going to wind up doing child abuse material. And it's just a hard, horrible business. And if, if you do child abuse material and you clear payments for child abuse material, you should be thrown into prison. The second question was, were they faking their accounts? Now, I'm going to have to give you a quick lesson in how you fake your accounts. If you're faking your accounts, you're overstating your revenue or you're understating your expense. There's no other choice. If you overstate your revenue or understate your expense at the end of the year, your balance sheet is going to show a whole lot of cash that doesn't actually exist. Now, your auditors, the auditors are never there when you actually sell the transaction. Auditors exist to check cash balances, right? That's what auditors every day, all they do is check balances. So your auditor should find that. The trick, however, is if you've got this fake cash, you've got to spend it on something the auditors can't check. And so they bought a whole lot of credit card operations in Asia, long, long way from Germany. And they bought one in Jakarta, actually. And one of my friends actually went and visited the one in Jakarta. And it turned out that the one in Jakarta didn't exist. Or more accurately, it barely existed. It was a single office. Doing nothing that we could tell down a dirt road on the outskirts of Jakarta with a military base at the end. Now, I can't tell you how many times the Indonesian military's been involved in stock frauds. It's been more than once. But this was, you know, a red flag of the highest order because what we had shown was that here are a bunch of dirty people spending money, large amounts of money on businesses that didn't exist.
0: But did the money not exist?
1: That's the key. You fake your profit, you get fake cash. The fake cash is used to buy a fake business. When you go find the business that doesn't exist, you can bet that the profit that generated the money to buy that business didn't exist. And so at this stage, we were pretty sure why a card was a fraud. But Uh,
0: meaning there never was any money in the first place or it went into someone's pockets and it's in a bank in the Cayman Islands?
1: No, the money never existed. The purpose of this is that I generate fake cash, right, fake profit. My stock then has fake earnings. I then sell shares. Ah, so it's to defraud the stock market. You've got it. And in this case... The company had issued 90 million shares to do acquisitions between the years 2004 and 2006. We've tried to trace who those shares were issued to and alarm bells go off everywhere. And Why? Is that an easy to explain thing? The people that they were issued to were people who did high-risk merchant transactions. And if alarm bells don't go off when you're – dealing with somebody who does high-risk merchant transactions in the Philippines, then you and I are not thinking about the world the same way. Yeah. Those shares that they issued had a peak market cap of 15 billion euro, which is the better part of, say, 27 billion Australian dollars. And my guess is that those people sold literally billions of dollars' worth of stock. And that's how they made money. And and that was the game. So what you had was fake profits generating fake cash that was used to buy fake businesses. Yeah,
0: okay. Just one step back. How do companies do fake profits and fake income? How can you do that? How come Joe Blow's small business can't
1: get away with that? Well, firstly, Joe Blow's small business doesn't have an incentive here, right? Because it's not much fun faking the profits of your own private business. Yeah, right. Right? Because what it's fun doing is faking the profits of a public business because then you have publicly listed shares and you can sell those shares for large amounts of money. Right. So Mm -hmm. the second thing is that you tend not to want to do it Australian domestic. And the reason you tend not to want to do it Australian domestic is that you wind up paying tax on the fake profits. Now, if I go back to where I started in this career, years and years and years ago, there's a famous Four Corners episode, and the Four Corners episode was about Alan Bond's finances. And it showed that the question at the time was, Alan Bond made $400 million of profit, but only paid $700,000 of tax. And the transactions described were a whole lot of property transactions done in the Cook Islands, if you remember the episode. I do. Were you on that episode? No, no, I Uh, never worked for the ABC.
0: Was that the Paul Barry story? yeah, Yeah, right.
1: But it was a great story. It's actually one of those stories which I've gone back to and said, okay, this is a pattern recognition thing for teaching my staff how to detect fraud. Great case study. Really great case study. But you don't want to fake your profits in Australia because you pay tax. But faking your profits in the Cook Islands is good fun. Now, every Sydney Morning Herald story at the time was wrong. Every single Sydney Morning Herald story was a sort of, this company made $400 million profit and paid no tax. Therefore, the tax system is problematic. And the correct story was this company faked $400 million profit. And why do you do that? It's so Alan Bond can sell shares and right. issue stock and right. The game was fake the profit for the purposes of the stock market, not fake the tax for the purpose. Right. And so every Sydney Morning Herald story was wrong. Now in the Wirecard thing, it got so aggressive at the end that they didn't even bother buying fake businesses with the fake cash. All that happened was that they wound up with this huge cash balance, and the huge cash balance allegedly sat at a bank in the Philippines. And when the auditor finally got to checking the bank at the Philippines, they discovered that the cash wasn't there. The bank said, we don't have it. The first thing that Wirecard came out and said is, we're the victim of a fraud, (gasps) that that cash was stolen. And that's a really convenient thing for them because then they're saying, yeah, we really are a business that made $1.9 billion. It just disappeared. In a bank in the Philippines. In the bank in the Philippines, right? Somebody stole it from us. And that absolves the management of any issue, right? Because it was just an accident, really. And it also says that Wirecard is a business capable of making $1.9 billion and therefore you should buy it.
0: Keep investing. Keep your- investing.
1: It. Right. But in reality, the $1.9 billion was never there which means that the profits that generated the $1.9 were never there, and therefore the management that previously got up and said we're the victims of a fraud are, in fact, the perpetrators of a fraud. And this is actually something you should ask yourself again, again, and again when you see frauds, which is the person that claims to be the victim. Surprising amount of the time is, in fact, the perpetrator. I've seen it several times. And I've seen regulators fall for it so that the perpetrators of frauds get off scot-free.
0: With Wirecard, how long ago did you see the red flag? Oh, that, like
1: well. Before okay. the fin times? I'm a short seller. I bet on stocks going down. And my job by and large is to detect fraud, which I'm very good at. Bet on the share and bet on the shares and hopefully cover them at a low price. But if I sell a share at $10 and it goes to $100, I'm now going to lose $90 on a $10 bet, which doesn't look very sensible to me. And it doesn't help me. And I actually have to cover that. I have to take some risk. And it doesn't help me if it goes from $10 to zero via $100 because I'm going to get squeezed and lose so so much much money along the way. And Wirecard was the biggest loser in the history of my firm. We found it in 2009, right, which is an awful long time ago. And the stock price was about €8. The stock price went from €8 to €191. It's now trading at about €2, but that's only a sort of equity stub on the way to bankruptcy. It will go to zero. And we talk about the risk management with shorts, you know, as we talk about stocks that go from 10 to 100, 10 to zero via 100 is our problem, but the discussion is not just theoretical. And it was really horrible from our perspective because we knew it was a fraud, but along the way they completely captured the German regulators so that if you actually publicly said it was a fraud, they went after you. They went after you. And I mean, I, I provided some information to Dan McCrum, who's the FT journalist who Journal was- Journal on the Financial But Times. to be fair, Dan McCrum found far, far more about Wirecard than I ever knew. I just knew they were a fraud. Because once you've proven that one acquisition doesn't exist, it's likely the second one and the third one and the fourth. And then, you know, one of the allegations that came out in the press was a big acquisition that they did in India didn't exist. Well, that's probably true. Now, the other thing is this thing did high-risk merchant transactions in the Philippines, right? I mean, Westpac at one stage did some high-risk merchant transactions in the Philippines and did it by accident. And it turned out very nastily for them because something like 40 of those transactions were live pay-per-view of watching children being abused. And, and so- this is this recent AUSTRAC yeah, case. Yeah, they settled that for a large amount of money, right? I mean, if you're managing a financial institution and you've discovered your financial institution is used for that, it's not what you would call a good day, right? I mean, it's, if you're not squeamish, you should be. Oh, yeah. Right? But this company did high-risk transactions in the Philippines for 15 straight years.
0: So it was an incredibly damning indictment wirecard on the auditors
1: and on the German regulators, On the German regulators in particular. Now, I've actually talked to some senior staff at the Australian regulators about it, and to be fair, they look at it and say, there but for the grace of God, go us, right? We are not very well equipped at detecting fraud. Really? Right. We're just not. And we've got to get better because nasty things can happen. So I'm, I'm not going to criticize the Australian regulators here. They've learnt a lesson, right? Whether they can implement it is another question. And I've talked to several senior staff at the regulators about how you detect fraud. And my impression is that the senior staff are competent, willing, and hardworking, but they're not very well informed.
0: But you're saying, I mean, you're saying it's really important work. We have to
1: root out these fraudulent ones. It's spectacular. In Australia, it's more important than almost anywhere. And the reason is that Australia saves through superannuation, which is largely invested in the stock market, and is run by asset-gathering financial institutions that own a little bit of everything. The Australian market is characterized by the largest pool of dumb money in the universe. Right, There is nowhere else in the world that ordinary people might own $300,000 worth of shares and not be the slightest bit interested in what they own. Right, They look at their statement once a year, but they don't even think it's real. I mean, your superannuation ain't real until you're 50-something anyway, and then it suddenly starts becoming more important to you. But if you're 30-something, it's on the never-never. right? And so, what you have in Australia is a very bad combination. You've got a relatively weak but improving financial regulator that would probably be suckered in by something like Wirecard. You have an enormous pool of dumb money, which is the super money, and then you've got something which matches the Germans of, we're going to prosecute you if you spread false rumours about Wirecard, which is we've got defamation laws. And my lesson here is that combination is just toxic, right? That is, Australia is a complete and utter haven for fraudsters. And what happened with a star, a trio, only stopped because I wrote a letter. And even then, I'm not sure that ASIC would have responded to my letter had I not delivered it the way that I did. And the way that I delivered it was that I wrote it for Ken Henry, who was at the time the Secretary of the Treasury and an old friend. And Ken took my name off and put his name on and sent it to ASIC. And it Basically included lines like, if you don't call the federal police, I will.
0: And this came from the the Secretary Secretary of of the the Treasury. Treasury Oh, I didn't know that aspect of the
1: story. And so if you had. So they jumped. They jumped and they jumped really fast. It was like three weeks. Right. And, you know, three weeks later, the Astara Trio office was raided by the federal police and the principal's home was also raided by the federal police.
0: No. And Astara and Trio had the same the principles. Same, yeah, the same oh, When they were supposed right. to be all arm's length yeah, and independent. Uh, yeah, yeah it all
1: bullshit. Yeah. Right. Or what I would call a st- all of that corporate governance there was what I would call a stinking pile of horse manure. Right. I, I can't run the counterfactual, which is if you had found the biggest fraud in Australian superannuation history and just as Joe Blocks written a letter to ASIC, would they have reacted? Now, I hope they would. But you worry that... Yeah. Well, remember, I think that there are probably 25 competent staff at ASIC, right? That's not enough, right? Mm. But when the letter came from the Secretary of the Treasury, I was guaranteed that the competent staff would notice. Okay. So I guess what you're
0: saying is that the Wirecard fraud, we've had a number of frauds in this country, but the Wirecard one now, that could easily happen
1: in Australia? It could absolutely easily happen.
0: In general, how do you pick frauds? Because they are hard to prove and you're betting other people's money too. Oh,
1: I realise. Sometimes we pick them just by people, right, so that we know people who have certified fake gold reserves before. And we have an encyclopedic knowledge of this, so we. Well, you keep a database on them. So we all. keep a database, but it's much more extensive than that. We do things like we scrape the USSEC database every day. We put name recognition software through it. We match it to the names in our own database. It's and you're allowed hevi- to do that. Yeah, it's heavily computer intensive. Mm. Don't don't try to do what I do at home. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is not a standard fund management idea. Of course. We know of fraudulent gold companies who used to, you know, they'd get the gold sample from drilling in the ground and they'd pour a little bit of gold into it. And then they'd send it off to the lab and then they'd discover that, yeah, there was gold in this hole. But they put it in there. Of course. It's called salting the mine. Right? And you know, it's as old as the hills. Mark Twain allegedly said that a gold mine was a hole in the ground with a lyre on top. <laughs> Right. And the reason it was called salting was that the original way you did it was that you took a shotgun shell and you filled it with not lead, but salt and gold. And then you'd fire it at the rock and it looked like you'd get a gold seam and then you'd convince people that this was a real gold mine. And then you'd sell them the gold mine. Right. And... That's why it's called salting. Anyway, we know people that have salted gold mines, but we actually know of one case where somebody put half a gram per tonne into the rock and then got it back from the lab and it had 16 grams per tonne in it. So they found a real gold mine. It's one of these things that your mum won't tell you, which is that good things sometimes happen to bad people. Right? Okay. But we we lose money when good things happen to bad people.
0: Yeah, when the stock right. keeps <laughs> going up 10 <laughs> We're times. We're yeah, Right. Yeah, yeah. John how do you know or how do you make an educated guess that or more than an educated well, guess card. that it's not incompetence that it is actually
1: fraudulence oh sometimes we do physical checks so wirecard we made an educated guess that somebody who did high, high risk merchant business for pornography in asia was probably a bad person which is not a hard guess no and that they had a company in germany and if they're a bad person they might be that they're faking their accounts and then we looked for the acquisition that didn't smell right, right, and paying hundreds of millions of dollars for a merchant acquirer in Indonesia didn't smell right. So we sent somebody to look. Mm.
0: That's, but picking that they're um, a high-risk merchant acquirer giving you to brothels to on a, online gambling, you, you know, that would have taken a lot of investigation.
1: Yeah, but we did a lot of looking at financial institutions at the scummy end of the world. Right. The process of looking for financial institutions at the scummy end of the world is another thing that we've automated. Just who operates where. Yeah. Right. Now I like to criticize ASIC and the regulators for, for being less good at this than me, but it's actually not entirely fair. And the reason is that I only need to be right a decent proportion of the time in order to make money. Say I have a hundred different shorts. And I'm right on 70 of them. They go to zero over time. And I'm wrong on 30. 30 random stocks performs almost identically to a stock index. So I should be able to hedge out where I'm wrong. So all I need to short is a reasonably articulable suspicion, right? Because as long as I'm right most of the time, that's fine. If I name names to you on this podcast, I need to be absolutely sure because I'm going to wind up in court for defamation and if you're the regulator you know it's a very big step for the regulator to walk into wirecard and close their business or to walk into a stara trio and close their business for a regulator to do that they don't need a reasonably articulable suspicion they need to be right beyond any reasonable doubt now I saw the regulator walk into a starry trio and close their business. I'm going to say that there are very few times that I've seen a regulator actually do that, but they did it there, and endless credit to ASIC. Now, the German regulator didn't even investigate Wirecard; it investigated the short sellers and the, the short sellers and the journalistic and the messengers. Journal- journalistic messengers. Now, when I tease ASIC or tease the regulators as being not as good at it as me, and it's true they're not as good at it as me, I'm also being a little unfair because they've got a harder job than me.
0: Yeah, you only have to do it to satisfy yourself and your
1: team. As long as I'm right 70% of the time and I'm diversified, I'm just fine, thank you. In my own business, I like regulators to be incompetent. Right, The easiest fraud to find is a recidivist, and the easiest way of having recidivists is have hopeless regulators. So I
0: so the fraudsters system. keep coming back, trying keep to take your back. money, yeah, and I mean,
1: you're going to pick. Yeah, I mean, I dislike the death penalty because recidivism goes to zero. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, in, in, seri- in all yeah, seriousness. Yeah. I like re- right. So I have a vested interest in hopeless regulators. But when a client asks me to help out, on a German regulator, I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah, but right? you you recently called the German finance minister in your blog delusional.
1: Oh, he was. The finance minister said that the regulator had done a good job. The regulator had prosecuted journalists for telling the truth. If that's a good job, I'd hate to see what a bad job is. And hadn't gone after the original fraud stuff. Yeah. There's a good reason to be upset about Wirecard, right? I mean, apart from the fact that they just laundered huge amounts of money, for organized crime I and mean, I don't have the evidence that they did child pornography but I sure as hell had the evidence that they did pornography that they did online gaming and I've never known a company that does a large amount of asian pornography not to have a problem
0: John just to step sideways a little bit what's the easiest way you can explain shorting
1: Everybody in the market seems to bet one way. They bet that things appreciate. You get long a property or you get long some BHP shares or you get long some bonds and you hope you make some money. Now, it's possible, though somewhat difficult, to take the other side of the trade, at least in liquid financial markets. So if I were to bet that, say, National Australia Bank was to have a large number of problems, I could borrow some National Australia Banks from a broker and I'd have to provide some collateral. I could sell those National Australia Banks in the market at $18 a share. And if it has problems, I could buy them back at $10 a share later. The problem, of course, is if they don't have problems, they might go to $30 a share and pay a whole lot of dividends and I have to pay those dividends to make them up to whoever I bought them from. And I have to buy the share back at $30 and I lose a lot of money. It's a pretty tricky way to make money. The shorting. The shorting. It's a very tricky way to make money. The way we tend to do it is almost entirely to focus on frauds. Right? And the reason we focus on frauds is a lot of educated people know roughly where the profits of National Australia Bank is going to be. And... I can be right or wrong, but I'm going to be right or wrong within fairly narrow ranges.
0: And of course, Whereas, I'm sorry, we're giving this example of yeah, National Australia Bank. We'll just it's make straight, clear because it's a straight, it's great a straight, Australian yeah, it's a company.
1: company. Yeah. In fact, my friend Ken Henry's on the board. But if at Wirecard, you had one cluster of people out there who believed that this was the greatest technology stock in Europe. And another cluster of our people out there, much smaller cluster, who believed that it was the greatest fraud in European history. Now, this is a very, very large divergence. And as a and I knew for sure it was a very, very big fraud because we'd staked out the place, the office in Indonesia. And at that point, where you know for sure the outcome and the divergence of opinion in market is enormous, that's generally a pretty good opportunity, right? Because a difference of opinion makes markets. In this case, the difference of opinion was enormous.
0: Can I just jump in there, accept that? Because more people thought it was the best tech stock in Europe, you. it was it.
1: going to go up a lot more. You've got and it, and you were exposed. The problem with running a short book is that you are exposed to all the intermediate points. If I buy a share for ten dollars and it goes to two hundred via five, I'm fine, right? If I buy a share on two times leverage for ten dollars, right? and it goes to 100 via 5, I'm not fine, right, because I'm going to get wiped out at 5 if I'm twice levered. So if you are a long investor and you are levered, meaning you borrowed money, then not only do you care about the start and the end point, but you care about all the intermediate points.
0: So you do care if it goes to 200 on the way back down to 5 or 0. If
1: you have... $100 and you buy $200 worth of shares at $10 and they go to $200 via $5, you're stuffed because when it goes to $5, you're wiped out, right? So if you are levered, you care about all the intermediate points because any intermediate point can wipe you out. If you're not levered, you don't care about the intermediate points except if you're trying to sell a fund to people and your customers care about the intermediate points, but you shouldn't care about the intermediate points. If you're a short seller, unfortunately, you get margined the whole way. So if it goes from 10 to zero via 100, when it goes to not 100, you have to hand over $90 of margin and you can run out of margin to give them, right? If you're a short seller or a levered long investor, you have to care about all the intermediate points, right? And the risk management for a short seller is actually very like the risk management for a levered long investor because of the requirement to care about the intermediate points. And when we actually mathematically model it, which we do a fair bit of, we actually think about them the same way. Now, people understand leave it long much more than they understand short. Yeah. I mean, buying something on leverage and having it hard, even if you're right, will wipe you out. There are many an investor on the long side who has been too full of themselves being right and being smashed. And the reason they're smashed is that they're levered and they can't handle the intermediate points. There's many an investor on the short side who's been too full of themselves, being right and being smashed. And dare I say it, Wirecard was our turn to get a little bit smashed. We were right and we were smashed. Did you lose a lot? No, because we managed the risk pretty well. But we lost almost 4% of our funds under management, now at the moment, that sounds like that's a lot. lot. Well, at the moment, if I, we're managing about a billion US dollars. So if it was at the moment, it would be about 40 million US dollars. It would be a shitload of money. But as it turns out, it was over 10 years and seven years ago, we were managing a hundred million US. So in dollar terms, it's not as spectacular as it sounds in percentage terms, but we have hard rules about how much we're prepared to lose on any position right what people would call stop losses right and our hard rules tripped us out of the wire card position so we kept having to trim the wire card position on the way up in order to avoid the big losses that we were scared of it's inevitable we've had hundreds of shorts Right. In fact, over the period that we've been running Bronte, we've shorted a little over a thousand different stocks.
0: And you say they've mostly been frauds? Yes. Or all been frauds? Mostly. So in 10 years, you've found a thousand fraudulent companies
1: around the world. Yes. A surprising number in Australia.
0: Deeply depressing. Really, it is isn't very it? deeply.
1: I mean, the crooks have a really good business model, particularly in Australia, because they sell these fraudulent stocks to superannuation funds who have to buy a bit of everything. Okay. Right? The crooks have a really, really good business model.
0: Can I ask you this is perhaps I, more I, philosophical I, I'm before I'm we sorry, go? I,
1: but I'm serious about that because stock fraud is because a major of that superannuation Yeah, Stock pool fraud of is money. a major industry in the world.
0: All right. You are talking about these people as, you know, they're crooks and fraudsters. You know, not to be rude about it, but you want to make money out of fraud. So oh, yeah. in some yeah, way, no. if you're not complicit, that might be too strong a word, are you in some Look, vested uh, interest yeah. alliance it's with so, these
1: people? To some degree, yes, right? Which if the securities regulators were really, really good at doing their jobs and they could eliminate 85 90% of this fraud, I'd have to find out another way of making money. I just have to go.
0: So you're in a a kind
1: of a dirty alliance with the fraudsters. Well, except that I dilute their profits, right? To the extent that I make some money short selling, they don't make money selling the stock as well.
0: But isn't it better for the community to be rid of them completely?
1: Yes, right? And occasionally I tip off the regulators as to a fraud, but I tend to only tip off the regulators when it's particularly egregious and when I'm 99.9% sure because my normal standard is just a reasonably articulable suspicion. But if I tell the regulators and all I've got is a reasonably articulable suspicion, my credibility with the regulators goes down. Right? And the Wirecard example tells me I shouldn't tell the regulators. Because if you told the regulators with Wirecard, they gave you a criminal charge. Mm. They put one short seller into prison for telling the truth on Wirecard. I and mean, it was just astonishing how bad the regulator was there. And I mean, as a taxpayer in Australia, I worry about it because the underpinning of the Australian super system is effectively the tax office. If there's a $100 billion of fraud in the Australian super system, at some point, just politically, the government's going to have to make some of that good. So, taxpayers right. have to foot the bill in the end. So, to some degree, taxpayers will foot. So, I mean, I have a vested interest in the Australian regulator getting better. And But I've you have actually a vested offered-
0: interest in the fraudsters still going, is there, I mean, yeah, I don't so want to push many, you so too many, much, but how do you so feel many- about
1: that? Well, I mean, my main advantage is I dilute their profits, right? I, mm-hmm. If you actually want to work out, do I do good or bad in the world. The answer is I do good, but not as much good as a competent regulator would do.
0: You tend to go after fraudsters in other jurisdictions?
1: I go after them wherever they are. I'm an equal opportunity chaser. (laughs) Now, there are certain places which are full of them, right? In Australia, you're more likely to be a fraud if you come from the Gold Coast or Perth than if you come from Melbourne. That should be obvious to any Australian. In North America, you're more likely to be a fraud if you come from Vancouver. But the locations in North America are Vancouver, Salt Lake City, Boca Raton.
0: Salt Lake City?
1: Yes. Centre of the Mormon Church? Yes. Salt Lake City is actually the affinity fraud capital of the world. Mormons are pound for pound the best salespeople on the planet. And there's a good reason for this. At the age of 18, they go on a mission and they go and sell religion door-to-door. If you can sell religion door-to-door, you can sell anything. Moreover, you're astonishingly used to rejection. Selling religion door-to-door must be the most rejection-driven experience you could ever imagine. Now, it turns out that as a result, Mormons are just very, very good salespeople. Mormons are 2% of the US population, but they're 6% of Fortune 500 CEOs. And almost all of those people came up through the sales function because they're the world's best trained salespeople. Now, if you're selling financial scams, most people are going to reject your hokey financial investment idea. So you have to be pretty used to rejection, which you sell it, reject, 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 accept, be hit. The margin's 100%. So the same skills that you obtain selling religion door to door allow you to be a financial scammer. And so Mormons, not only are they 6% of Fortune 500 CEOs, they're probably 15% of US financial scammers.
0: Probably. Like, do you know that or are you bad-mouthing Mormons without
1: evidence? We have found many, many, many examples. Now, there's also a type of fraud called affinity fraud, which we don't get involved in at all. And affinity fraud is where you sell people in your own group on some scam. Though we do look for it. And, you know, every group has it. Right. There are mosques where some people in the mosque rip off other people in the mosques. There are synagogues where some people in the synagogue rip off other people in the synagogue. There are Catholic churches where they all rip each other off. And it's not just religious groups. No, but religious groups are very good for it. And the reason is that religious groups are very, very trusting of other people in the religious group. Right? Now, it turns out that the group where you find the most affinity fraud happens to be Mormons. And
0: just one more sort of, I guess, more philosophical question. Why not put your own and your clients' hard earned money just into good companies that make good products, that oh, we, um, offer good oh, long term jobs for people, do. build we do, economies? We do.
1: That is the core of Bronte. The difference, though, is that most people either try to buy the best companies and hold them. Or they try to do what Warren Buffett does, which is to hold cash, hold cash, hold cash, hold cash, hold cash. And then one day the market gets a big swoon, be it GFC or something like that. And then when the market's very low, they take all that cash and buy the good companies. We tend to buy the very good companies as well. And we're very proud of some of the ones we own, but we don't hold cash. What we do is we hold a whole lot of shorts. And then when the market takes a big swoon, those shorts all go down. We have a whole lot of cash collateral that was given to the shorts. That cash collateral is given back to us. You get the cash. Cash, and then we buy a bunch of good companies. When the market's down. Right. So we're not shorting for the sake of shorting. We're shorting for the sake of giving us cash at the right time of the cycle so that we can buy good companies. So you know, you say you know we're not actually trying to buy good companies. We are.
0: No, I didn't say that. I no, said why
1: not put all of your well, money into just buying. The, good the companies. problem is that if you put all of it in, when the market's low, you have no more to put in. Right. Right. Whereas when the market is low, we have a lot to put in because we've made big money on the shorts. Yeah. Right. That's the timing trick that underlies Bronte. Effectively. I am a believer in the Buffett view of the world. He with the most biggest pile of high quality assets at the end wins, which is the Buffett view of the world. And there's a real trick to how do you work out what is a high quality asset? Because some people thought that Wirecard was a high quality asset. Warren Buffett's view is I will do this by saving and saving and saving and saving. And then once in the blue moon, when the market gives you an opportunity, I'll go wallop and buy something big and my view is I'll do this incrementally, right? And get the cash to and do it. And get the cash, right? So the business model of Bronte is short crap, buy gold, right?
0: And you mean by that short, crummy stocks, yep. make money out of them yes, to buy good, good quality, quality
1: businesses, yes. Stocks.
0: Next week, in part two of my chat with entrepreneurial long-short fund manager John Hempton, he reveals in great detail the good quality stocks he likes to invest in for his long portfolio, why he does not read broker research on shares, and the extraordinary value in having great bosses and mentors like Ken Henry and Platinum's Kerr Nielsen early in his career. That's next week on Build It, They'll Come. In the meantime, I'd love you to share this episode with your friends and family, and please leave a star rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Or you can contact me on Twitter at Helen Dally. See you again on Build It, Thou will Come.